Church in Sally, South Carolina. We pray God's richest blessings for you as you study His Word. Alright, if you would find your place in Matthew chapter 5 this morning, we continue on in our study verse by verse through the Gospel of Matthew, and we're finding ourselves still in the Sermon on the Mount. Now we're at the end of chapter 5, in what is really kind of ironic, uh, from my perspective at least, how some of these past weeks we've had to take smaller portions of Scripture to really kind of spend some time on what on what Jesus was saying, and yet these past three weeks that have been smaller, even last week, two verses, and then today... We're going all the way from verse 33 to verse 48, the end of chapter 5, and taking three different sayings all together because they are somewhat related, and we'll see that, I think, as we read the Scriptures. But one of the developing features here in the Sermon on the Mount is the authority of Jesus. And you have to understand, this, this particular teaching that He was doing was closer to the beginning of his earthly ministry, right? So if you think about um, Matthew is 28 chapters, and we're in chapter 5, and this is the largest teaching, longest teaching we have recorded uh, at one moment, chapters 5, 6, and 7. That's significant, right? And so the thing that's happening, though, the more he teaches, the more it becomes apparent that there's something different about him. Matter of fact, I don't want to spoil the surprise, but when you get to the very end of the Sermon on the Mount, in the, the, the last part of chapter 7, the last thing that is said after he finishes teaching is how everybody was just awestruck because he was teaching differently than the scribes and the Pharisees. He was teaching as one who had authority and, but but that, that's enough in itself. But then it says, not like the scribes and Pharisees. So it's a, a huge contrast to say, well, this guy shows up and he's got all kinds of authority. You can just tell. And then what about these other religious leaders? They, they really don't. You know, so there's a, there's a contrast that is developing between Jesus and the religious establishment And so Jesus now continues to explain the true meaning of the Old Testament law in ways His his listeners have never heard before. So in today's passage, from verse 33 to 48, we're going to see three more of these antithetical statements. And what I mean by that is, you've heard it said this, but I'm saying this, right? So He's explaining the law, and then He summarizes what He's taught thus far with this startling demand that if you're going to follow Him, you have to be perfect, just like the Father in heaven is perfect. And you can imagine the response. What? That's not, nobody's, I mean, what's the saying? Nobody's perfect, right? Nobody's perfect. So it sounds impossible, right? But we need to see what Jesus has to say about it. So if you'll... Follow along with me in your Bible, or you can follow along on the screen. We're going to start in verse 33 today, Matthew 5, and here's what Jesus says. 
Again, you have heard, the ancients were told, you shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your statement be yes, yes or no, no. Anything beyond these is of evil. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat as well. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you, and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For He causes His Son to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers... What more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Father, in Jesus' name, I pray you will speak to our hearts today with great clarity in spite of, of my shortcomings and my flaws. I pray we'll hear from you. So speak to us, Lord. Help us listen and help us obey. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There's several values that Jesus has presented in His Word today. And we're going to just go one by one through these and hopefully we'll be able to see what exactly Jesus is telling those in attendance at the Sermon on the Mount and those of us in attendance here today, the first thing that Jesus discusses is the value of a believer's word. The value of a believer's word. This reminds me, I can't read this section without thinking about um, my dad and his work career and how things changed so drastically in what he was doing, dealing with people. You know, he, my dad was in the banking business, and he, in a 40, some, 40 plus years in the, with the same bank, you know, he knew everybody in town, everybody knew him, because he just dealt with a lot of people. And he would tell me stories. We don't talk about it as much anymore, because now he's been retired for 15, 18 years, something like that, which is hard to believe. But when that was happening, and he was still working, he would just say how much things have changed over that 40 plus years in the same industry. How, you know, when he was younger and just starting out and making loans and people would come to see him and 
you look a man in the eye, you shake his hand, and you know what you're dealing with. You know what kind of character a man has. And, and his word really meant something. And then over the years, what happened in that industry is the same thing that happened uh, in many other contexts. Is, uh, so the banks would then, now they have, the, the, the stack of paperwork grew you know, to where there's all these regulations and all these safeguards because as, as soon as somebody doesn't pay something back or, you know, whatever the case may be, well, we've got to guard ourselves against that happening again. So we're going to, you know, you have to have all these papers to sign, all these agreements, and it's no longer a handshake deal. And the reason why that happened is in large part because the value of a person's word decreased to where now you have to have more um, support, uh, more guarantees for someone's word to mean anything. It's a shame. It's a, it's a sad commentary on our culture. But you see what Jesus says, you've heard you should not make false vows, but you should fulfill your vows to the Lord and, and this, he's quoting three different sections of the Old Testament law. He's, he's quoting Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. I won't tell you all the verses, but he's quoting this principle that's mentioned three different times in the law of Moses. But he says, don't make an oath at all. And that seems kind of odd, right? Because it seems instead of having the regulation and the restraint there, he's just casting off all the restraints. What do you mean, don't make an oath? Don't make a promise? Well, what he's getting at is, you mean to tell me your word is worth so little that you can't just be honest with me? Right? He says, don't make an oath at all. And he mentions context for that. Don't swear by heaven, because it's the throne of God. Don't swear by earth, it's the footstool of His feet. Don't swear by Jerusalem, it's the city of the great king. He's quoting Psalm 48. And then he says, don't even swear by your own head because you can't make one hair white or black. In other words, you can't change your aging process. Right? Because you're not that powerful. But Jesus says, let your yes be yes and let your no be no. Seems pretty simple, right? You tell me yes, it means yes. You tell me no, it means no. Nothing else is required. Right? I posted this yesterday on social media just kind of as a, a little teaser for the sermon. And I asked this, this rhetorical question, have you ever made a statement to somebody and followed it up with, I promise, or I swear? You know, you say something and you follow it with that? You know what that, you know what that means? You're expecting the other person not to believe you. So you're trying to add weight to what you're saying so you will be believed. Isn't that sad? Are we so untrustworthy that we can't just say the truth and be believed? But that's what that means. It's a sad commentary. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who I, I quote fairly often, he said, the very existence of oaths is a proof that there are such things as lies. Why would you have to do it otherwise? John Stott, another brilliant scholar, 
says the real implication of the law is that we must keep our promises and be people of our word. But then vows become unnecessary. Honest men don't need to resort to oaths. Swearing, oath-taking, is really a pathetic confession of our own dishonesty. It's a shame. Our culture has become, as a whole really, so dishonest, so deceptive. You can't... Have you ever thought this or said it? You just can't trust anybody anymore. Ever thought that? Yeah. That's the world in which we live. That's not the world Jesus designed. A believer's word should mean something. Number two, the value of a believer's rights. And this may be one of the more difficult subjects in this whole passage because now Jesus is talking about retaliation. He says in verse 38, you've heard an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Sounds right, doesn't it? We respond to a situation according to how we've been treated. We treat, that's, that, that's the golden rule, right? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Some people nowadays change that and it says do unto others before they do unto you. That's not what that means. I'm going to get them before they have a chance to get me, you know. That's not, that's not Christian. So he's quoting here Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. But he says there's a better principle. He says don't resist an evil person. And he mentions three different scenarios. He says turn the other cheek, give the other coat, walk the extra mile, do more than is required. Don't respond in the way you are treated, but treat them differently. And now what, would that, what would happen when you do that? How would that affect that situation? Well, Jesus is trying to make the point that when you respond in a way like that that's totally different how you were treated, then it causes some confusion. right? It causes some, uh, some thoughts to go off in the other person's mind because whether they would admit it or not, that doesn't make sense. When someone treats you poorly and you are kind in response, that does not make earthly sense. It makes Christian sense. It doesn't make earthly sense. So Jesus is saying, turn the other cheek, give the other coat, walk the other mile. Don't, res- don't respond in the same way that an evil person would treat you. Be generous with the goods of the world. Be a good steward of what God's provided. In other words, when He says here... Um, Let's see, he puts, if anyone wants to sue you, then he says, give to him, verse 42, give to him who asks of you. Don't turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. So what does that mean for us? Well, we provide for our families first and foremost. But if we have the ability, then we care for others. Right? We care for others. Uh, Something really interesting happened uh, at the, the gym where I go just recently, within the last two weeks. Uh, the folks who, who own the custom shop and the gym, they put this little building out in the parking lot. And uh, it's bright blue with white trim, and it doesn't have a lock on it. But it's just a small food pantry for anyone who's in need. It's in 
I think in, in honor or memory of her grandmother, I think is right. And uh, it's got the name, her, like a, a little memento name of, of her grandmother on there. And uh, you, you open the door. I should have took pictures of it. You open the door and it's just got all kind of different non-perishable goods in there. Food, like some, there's, there's diapers, there's shoes, there's food. And then right in the middle, there's a little box. There's a little tray with cards and pens and it says, Prayer Request. And she, she gave me a key to it. She said, here, check this at least once a week. We want to make sure these people are being prayed for. And, and I just thought, where am I? This is, not, this is not normal. This is not what happens in, in this world. But when you have the ability and you have the resources to do it, care for other people. Don't neglect your own family to do it, but care for other people. That's what, that's what Christians, that's what people should do, right? It this, this is not rocket science. That's how, we were, that's how I was raised, and I'm probably not alone. That's how we should behave. But what, what that does is that causes us to have a little uh, spiritual dilemma because it doesn't necessarily line up with, well, what if, they, what if they didn't treat me well? Am I still supposed to care for them? How does that work exactly? D.A. Carson wrote that this legalistic mentality that dwells on retaliation and so-called fairness makes a big deal out of our own rights. But what Jesus is saying in these verses more than anything else is that His followers have no rights. And that doesn't make sense, right? doesn't make sense. Let me, let me um, clarify that statement with another statement. Okay? Let me clarify that by saying what the Apostle Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 2. Because if you were to read that and you were to, were to study the example of Jesus, then here's what we would see. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although He existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but He emptied Himself, taking the form of a bondservant, made Himself in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. And for this reason also God highly exalted Him, and bestowed upon Him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. See, when Jesus says to His followers, you might think you have rights, but that doesn't mean you should always exert those rights. You shouldn't always cling to those rights. He wasn't just making up a principle. He was foreshadowing the fact that He was going to do the very thing He was asking His followers to do because He emptied Himself. He's God in the flesh. We think we have more rights than the Son of God. He laid it all aside. If anyone had good grounds 
to exert his rights and to stop the atrocities that were being heaped up on him. It was Jesus. And he didn't. He laid it aside. You know why? For me. For you. He laid it all aside because he cared more about our redemption and the will of God than he did his rights as the Son of God, the Messiah. He laid it all aside. That's an example. James Boyce would write further that none of these statements suggest that the Christian is supposed to forego the protection that the law affords him, but on the other hand, where the law is not involved, that there the Christian is to forego his rights and refuse to retaliate. The Scripture I read at the beginning of the service in 1 Peter chapter 2, you've been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example for you to follow in His steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in His mouth. And while being reviled, He did not revile in return. And while suffering, He uttered no threats, but He kept entrusting Himself to Him who judges righteously. Paul would write um, more on this subject in Romans 12. Beginning in verse 18, he said, If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it's written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink, for in so doing you'll heap burning coals on his head. That sounds awful bad, doesn't it? Well, I'm going to be nice to them so they'll get some burning coals on their head. That'll, be, that'll get them, right? Well, that's, that defeats the purpose, right? The purpose is, what are the burning coals? It's the conviction of the Holy Ghost. It's that I can't believe, how can they be nice to me after the way I've treated them? It causes someone to do some soul searching and some self-examination. They've been horrible to you. And yet, are you, are you hungry? Are you thirsty? How can I care for you? That's disarming. And in, in, in the meantime, inside, they're, they're being eaten alive by it. It's driving them nuts. They would never admit it because that's not strong. They don't want to show their weakness. But inside, it's tearing them apart. I can't believe they're being so kind to me after the way I've treated them. The value of a believer's rights. Number three, the value of a believer's love. Jesus says in verse 43, you've heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now I want you to look in your Bibles right now. Look in your Bibles at verse 43. Because many Bibles, most I would say, when there is a quote in the New Testament that comes from the Old Testament, they put it in a different font. It's the small caps, right? And so many of your Bibles may have that. So if you see it, the font changes, right? When Jesus says, you've heard it said, and then it, he quotes. All right, well, look, look at verse 43. You should notice, if your Bible has that feature, that in verse 43, the words, you shall love your neighbor, are a quote from the Old Testament. Specifically, 
Leviticus 19 and Deuteronomy 23. But then the words, hate your enemy, are not in small caps. They're not a quote. You know why? Our good friends, the Pharisees, thought it would be nice to put that addition in there. So when Jesus quotes the well-known principle, only part of that principle is a quote from God's Word. The other part is a demonstration of what the Pharisees have done. So, you shall love your neighbor is of God. Hate your enemy is something man-made. Right? So isn't that interesting? That we had to add that. Man, and I say we because, you know, we didn't live then, but we'd have probably done the same thing. Right? So, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. But what does Jesus say? Jesus says, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Show that you belong to your Father in heaven. He blesses the good and the evil, the righteous and the unrighteous. This is what I was talking about, common grace. When the Bible says in verse uh, 40, let's see, 45, the sun rises. Are the Christians the only one who get to enjoy the sunrise and the sunset? And the heat of the sun, the warmth of the sun? Are the Christians the only one who benefit from the rain? So it's just the Christian farmers that, are, that their crops are good, right? But if you're not following Jesus, your crops are going to pot. Now that's not how it works. The rain falls. The sun shines. Common grace. Followers of Christ, though, should be distinct from the world. This is the main concept here that Jesus is trying to demonstrate. The value of a believer's love is that you don't love like the rest of the world. Because if you don't act... Listen, I've said this many times and it still is just as true as it ever has been. If we claim to follow Jesus, but there is nothing discernible in any way different in our lives than anybody else, that's a problem. Okay? If, if, if I'm standing next to or living in the same neighborhood or community or working in the same job or whatever, going to the same school, sitting in the same class as a non-believer and I claim to follow Jesus and people outside of that can't tell any difference between the two of us, that's a bad problem. And it's not a problem for the unsaved. Right? Because they're acting normally. They don't know Jesus and they're acting like it. But shouldn't the one who follows Christ or claims to follow Christ, shouldn't that life look different? Are y'all, is everybody okay? Y'all alright? Why, why don't we look different? Why don't we live differently? Why is there no distinction between the church and the world? Just think about the last three weeks. I mean, just look at the text. It's right there. Don't commit murder. Don't commit adultery. Guard your heart from divorce and adultery in that context. Why, why does the church look no different than the world? I'm not, I'm not lying. I'm not making this up. 
it's a problem. It's a problem when people who claim to follow Jesus look nothing like Jesus. And unfortunately, I'm, I'm at the front of that line many days. No, no one's exempt. No one is exempt. And before you think, well, he's, he couldn't be talking about me, I'm talking about you. Because I, I'm talking about me. I'm talking about us. Because we all have the same problem. Martin Luther King Jr. said, Love is the only force capable of transforming an enemy into a friend. The only way to overcome our enemy is by loving them. Dietrich Bonhoeffer. See, I, I, I don't come up, I can't, I'm not smart enough to do that. I quote these other people. What does love look like, though, for the Christian? Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 10. While we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps maybe for the good man someone would dare to die. But God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him, Christ. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more having been reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. God didn't wait for you to get your act together before He went to the cross. He died for sinners That, that should blow your mind. Jesus died for you despite your junk. That I just can't comprehend what kind of love, how deep the Father's love for us. While we were sinners. And so what does that mean for our Response, our conduct. Two more short quotes from people far smarter than I am, and they're, they're with Jesus now, so they know it's true. John Stott said, If the cruel torture of crucifixion could not silence our Lord's prayer for His enemies, what pain, pride, prejudice, or laziness could justify the silencing of our prayers for our enemies. You remember? You remember? Jesus was on the cross. Being crucified, what did He say? Forgive them, Father. They know not what they do. He, he's nailed to a cross. And He's praying for those who nailed Him there. And we can't get over ourselves. St. Augustine, early church father, said many have learned how to offer the other cheek, but do not know how to love him by whom they were struck. 
We get half of it right. Yeah, I'll turn the other cheek. Boy, when I get up, I'm going to... Yeah, that's, that's not how it works. So you have the, the value of a believer's word, the value of a believer's rights, the value of a believer's love. But what about verse 48? The value of a believer. Your heavenly Father is perfect. You should be too. Sounds impossible. But here's the funny thing. You remember when the angel came to visit Mary to let her know she was going to be giving birth to the Messiah and she didn't understand how that was possible? Do you remember what Gabriel said? Nothing will be impossible with God. So before we think we're not going to be made perfect, I didn't say we are perfect, so we will be made perfect. So before we you know, push back on that, let me just offer three scripture references that might help. Philippians 1 verse 6, He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion the day of Christ Jesus. How about Romans 8, verses 28 and 29? you remember what that says? We know that in all things, God works together for the good of those who love Him, who are called according to His purpose. You know what verse 29 says? It says, those He called, He also justified. And He predestined them to be conformed to the image of His dear Son. That means those who believe in Jesus are being transformed, conformed to the image of Christ who is perfect. What about 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 16? It is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. See, we are following Jesus and we are in the midst of this process of sanctification, progressive sanctification. And so we, you know, my favorite one is that Romans 8.29 because everybody knows Romans 8.28 about things working together for the good of those who love Jesus, right? Everybody knows that. We're quick to quote that one. But verse 29... Those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son, so He would be the firstborn among many brethren. See, this common demand of the kingdom in the Old Testament Scriptures is holiness, it's perfection. That's why Jesus said back in chapter 5, verse 20, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of God. We need a better righteousness just so happens Jesus offers that. Right? So let me, let me conclude here. We ask the question, how is it possible that a believer can be perfect just as Jesus is perfect? Matthew 5.20 
Jesus is the source of the better righteousness we need. And, not to skip to the end, but in Matthew 28, verse 18, you remember what Jesus said as He's about to announce the Great Commission? The first thing He said before He said, Go, verse 18, that's, that's the best part. Matthew 28, 18, All authority in heaven and on earth is given to Me. That's what Jesus said. So he, he made sure we remembered who's in charge before He told us what to do. He, he's in charge. Okay? He can make it happen. So the question before us today is this. Do, do I really want to be like Jesus? Is that, is that what we really want? I mean, I know we'll say that. I mean, that's the right answer. That's the Sunday school answer. Do you want to grow up and be like Jesus? Yeah. Okay. What, what child is not going to, you know, it would be odd if a five-year-old looked you up, up in the eye and said, No, I don't, I don't care nothing about that. I'd rather just do my own thing. Yeah. If your five-year-old says that, we need to talk. Do I really want to be like Jesus? Are we re- really willing to submit ourselves to His authority? He said all authority under, you know, in heaven and on earth is given to Him. And, and so here's why those questions are important. If we read this, if we study this, if we hear this, and we can't answer yes to those questions and really mean it, if I don't, if I don't really want to be like Jesus and I don't really want to submit to His authority, then the next question is far worse. Do I really belong to Jesus? I mean, you gotta you gotta ask, you gotta answer. Because if you don't want to be like Jesus and you don't want to submit to Jesus and His authority, how can you say you belong to Jesus? Because those things don't add up, right? So this scripture forces us into that examination and we have to take stock of who we are, what's in our hearts and minds. Every one of us. It's, it's a serious... This is a life and death type of thing. Right? This is serious. So here's some, some follow-up thoughts for, for all of us to consider. Where am I with Jesus? Okay, so how do I determine that? Alright, how about this? Am I... Convicted by my sinfulness? Does my sin cause me to mourn, to be sad? Do I have a strong desire to please God, to live for Him? Do I have a a hunger to read the Word? Do I have a hunger to grow in my relationship with Jesus? Do I treat other people the same way Jesus would treat other people? Is my lifestyle and my behavior becoming more and more holy like Jesus? Do I have a burden in me to tell other people about Jesus? See, those are the questions that we ask ourselves to give us a a true picture. Where do I stand with Jesus? Because every single one of those questions is an automatic yes for the person following Christ. If, I'm in a, if I believe in Jesus and He has saved me and I trust in Him and he, he is the source of my righteousness, I have a relationship with Him, 
If all of that's true, then all of these other things are going to be happening. It doesn't mean they're done. It doesn't mean it's a completed process, because that, that doesn't happen until we get to heaven, right? But it's a process. It's, it's happening. We're seeing progress. We're seeing transformation. Progressive transformation into the image of Christ. Let me just leave you with this statement. And I did actually write this, so it's not earth-shattering. A Christian is undergoing a progressive transformation into the image of Christ. Jesus came to save you and to transform you into a new creation. He came to change everything about you. And if transformation is not happening, then salvation may not have happened. There is fruit to be observed. We don't judge. Okay? That's between you and the Holy Spirit of God. But we are fruit inspectors. And it, God gave us a brain. And proof is in the life. It's not in the profession. It's in the life. Do we say it or do we live it? Because it needs to be both. So if, if you're here today and there's question in your heart or your mind or there's doubt about who you are in Christ or where you stand with Christ or anything like that, let me just offer you some encouragement. You don't take a bath because you're clean. Jesus cleans us up. If you think you've got to get your stuff straight before Jesus will accept you, you are wrong. And you might say, well, how do you know that? Because I know my life. And I know Jesus didn't expect me to be cleaned up, straightened out before He died for my sins. Please come to Jesus. Jesus came to this earth and died for our sins. He's done everything necessary for your salvation and forgiveness, for your eternal life. He's done everything. He, he just asks you to surrender to Him. Trust Him. Believe Him. And live for Him. Let me pray. www.berlinchurchsc.org